Hello, and thank you for joining the IPG Media Lab up here on Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and it is a lovely Friday because the strategy team is back on the pod. Welcome. Woo. Welcome, Adam and, Woot. and Christina. Uh, so this week, we'll be talking about influence, where it comes from, where it's going, where it has been, and we're super excited about this. I know, Christina, you've been uh, you know, been trying to write a blog post about this for uh, for the website. I have like flashes of genius on the train sometimes and it just hasn't come together, but I'll take all those napkins and get them into a blog post. That's, those are the best type of blog posts, you know, you got to piece, piece them together. But um... And by flashes of genius, I mean like downloads of my mind. I wouldn't call it genius. Sounds like a, sounds like a new trance hop single, downloads of my mind. Goodwill Ooh. hunting on the train. No, that's great. So a little background on the trend today is uh, when we are talking about influencers and the word influencer, we are going to be talking about professional influencers who are paid money. And uh, there are many sources of where influence comes from. And you can debate for many hours about what uh, an influencer is. But just for the purpose of this podcast, we'll be talking about uh, influencers that, that are actually paid cash for some sort of promotion, advertisement, whatever it might be. What if they're paid in Bitcoin? I'll count it. That, okay. Yeah, cleared. That, that is <laughs> not that. not just pure cash under the table <laughs> transactions. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, do they support hashtag ad or not? We'll see. Do they disclose? Who would like to give us a little background on this topic of influence? Christina, do you want to kind of give this a go? This yeah. Is, this, this, this has been, been your uh, napkin brainchild, which I'm very excited <laughs> to see come together. <laughs> My, our strategy baby. <laughs> yeah. So this has come up a number of times in conversations we've been having, especially with our retail clients and especially with our CPG brand clients. And it really applies to any category. But we talk a lot about in the broadcast era, it was a lot, e frankly, a lot easier for brands to reach mass audiences through things like TV advertising. And it's harder and harder to get consumers' attention these days just to, because of how fragmented the content ecosystem has become. And um, this topic of influence and where, how brands and how media and publishers can influence people, consumers. Um, is something that we've just been thinking a lot about and trying to wrap our heads around, you know, where influence is coming from these days and how brands can intercept that relationship and play a meaningful role in consumers' lives. Right. The I would say I said like like the the traditional broadcast TV uh, sponsorships, like when Coca Cola partnered with Santa back in 1931. I mean, that was like the very first of this influencer, you know, aspect of it. Yeah. And today that isn't that that isn't, you know, as as effective. There there's there's many more channels that you have to go across and find where this influence comes from, whether that's like social, digital, audio. There's just a lot more, you know, kind of clutter to to go through. Yeah, it's super interesting. If you think about media has kind of evolved alongside where consumer attention is shifting, and so too have brands. So if you think about broadcast culture. Basically, everyone in the U.S. was sitting down at the same time every night watching the same programs. And so, too, we were consuming all of the same products. You think about your traditional Coke with Santa mm -hmm. and the same toilet paper brands from P&G. Yep. And it was, you know, we had this kind of monoculture of the things we were watching and the brands we were buying. When the 90s came around, actually... 
media diversified away from just broadcast TV and cable TV started to capture more and more attention. And that's kind of the start of where you started to see attention fragmenting from like one Thursday night show into many different places and with very good content that was capturing people's attention. Fast forward to now, if I think about my media diet through the day, it's fragmented across platforms for sure. I wake up and the first thing I do is check Instagram because I'm addicted to Instagram. Uh, I get up, I will listen to a podcast. I then put on music on my way to work. I listen to music throughout the day. I don't want to tell Adam this, but I check Instagram frequently throughout the day. <laughs> yeah, no one ever looks at their phone at for work. work. For sure. That's that what Do Not happens. Disturb is for, obviously. <laughs> Your media diet today is so fragmented. You know, it's hard for a brand today to think about where to place their bets in this fragmented media ecosystem. And the answer very clearly is not television at scale anymore. Right. Yeah, so where so where do we think the channels then today are becoming like the most influential? Because if TV was the the way of the past, has social media become this new channel of influence where we're seeing more and more consumers go to consume this content to find those, you know, products that fit their lifestyle, the like the brands that fit their lifestyle or just kind of like get the inspiration that once came from this broadcast television. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, Broadcast television is sort of aging and, and the actual number of raw hours is declining for most uh, age groups. But if you think about it, even if you're sitting on your couch watching TV, you're usually also on social media at the same time. So I think it's really more, it's less of a one for one replacement. And it's more that just social media takes up a lot of our time. And, you know, there are native ads that are native to social media platforms um, that are, you know, in our feeds and in our stories and things like that. But, you know, brands are always looking for new ways to reach people. And I think the sort of working with influencers on these platforms is actually one of the easiest ways to start working on newer platforms and emerging platforms, um, because you just you figure out who has who is building an audience there and, and start working directly with them. And sometimes that even comes before there are uh, official um, ad formats on the platform, just because emerging platforms sometimes don't, you know, actually even have ads up and running yet. So, you know, working with, with influencers in that way, I think is a really natural extension of uh, what, what brands are doing everywhere else. It's a natural way to, to reach people on these, these platforms. And I think the important thing to just underscore in what Adam said was, is, uh, it's not about the medium in which a brand message is delivered. It's if it's capitalizing on where consumer attention is, right? So for example, if you take the fashion category, Vogue's readership has been declining, yet a number of the major fashion brands are still in Vogue. The majority of their uh, ad spend goes to Vogue. Um, that is smart because Vogue has years and years of context in the fashion category, but attention is now shifting to specifically Instagram in the fashion category and trends and people and things and remixes in fashion are being built from the ground up. Um, and it's allowing consumers to kind of take it into their own hands and remix things in their own unique way. And almost like see all this influence out there because it's not just one source. They can see different people doing different things, whether it's like someone's really specialized in animal prints and another person's specialized in minimalism. Like what social media does is um, you see these patterns evolve over time and consumers can kind of 
adapt them to be their own. Um, and brands, I think it's, you know, it's tough to shift budgets. Um, but I think the important thing to know is attention is shifting away from these mega um, publishers and media channels. Right. So it kind of allows individuals in a sense to pull from different sources to build their own sort of style, trend, fashion that aligns with um, this greater you know, trend that was set by Vogue. So in a sense, it's like this kind of gives a, a place for experimentation. You know, if you're a brand, it allows you to help, you know, reach a, a larger audience and, um, you know, let people get creative with your with your styles and and, and whatnot. I could talk about Vogue for hours, just <laughs> less from like a personal passion perspective and more just around the topic of influence and how influence changes. And I won't go on and on about it here, but um, it is interesting in the same way that we had monoculture from broadcast TV. We had monoculture from fashion magazines, right? A specific Vogue said what you should wear for the next fall season. And everyone wore that. Right. So then do you see that? with like new fashion brands coming up, for example, like how are they responding to this? Like, 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 what, like what are they doing from like an influence perspective to challenge what Vogue, you know, once did on like the, you know, one to many broadcast medium. I think very simply what they're doing is they realize that attention is on Instagram and on social and they're using that to their advantage. So they're, mm -hmm. There's a stat that says a lot of categories are growing, whether it's CPG, whether it's fashion, whether it's beauty. Uh, the categories are growing, but the top 100 brands are decreasing in revenue and decreasing in market share. Mm -hmm. um, and our hypothesis on why that is, is there are these upstart brands that are being really smart about the way that they use data. So if you can imagine audience attention is at point A, but a lot of traditional brands are spending in point B. What the direct-to-consumer upstart brands are doing is spending actually where consumers are paying attention, so on social media. And what that does is they can be really smart about hyper-targeting, personalization, and not just to push communications, but also to pull in product design and co-curate um, product lines and make their designs even more on target for who they're reaching. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of brands like Everlane brands like away is very mainstream now, but there are a number of brands across categories that are just, you know, they kind of have the same aesthetic, but, um, they're using the social media algorithms and spending money in those places, I think in a really smart way. Mm -hmm. Adam, I knew, it seemed like you were going to chime in about something. I know I, I think, I think I cut you off. I was just going to say that, um, just like, we had this shift from broadcast culture, from, you know, t television and newspapers and magazines switching, uh, you know, sort of attention moving to um, grassroots bottom up um, social media. I think that we are also seeing ad dollars follow the same uh, the same path um, as we see, you know, now, the, the interesting thing about influencers is that um, it's not, uh, you know, Anna Wintour is sitting in her office at Vogue who is dictating fashion. Um, fashion influencers, I think, are a great example of how that's flipped because they really get started with people they know in their own community. Um, and, you know, I think the interesting thing about influencers is that everybody, all of them sort of build up a natural community before they monetize that community. So they're they're really starting from something that, 
um, at least in the beginning, I think strikes most people as more authentic to begin with right. because it is, you know, sort of their personality and their brand. Um, I obviously, I think there's a lot of questions, especially now at this sort of late stage of uh, influencers on social media about how authentic they remain. And, you know, the larger you get, the more probably people are around you and inf- influencing the influencers in terms of what they're actually um, promoting, uh, whether it's it's paid or just part of their regular social channels. But uh, I think that, you know, at least in the beginning, they all have to build up a community from the ground up without any any paid incentive. Right. And I like the one thing that we've been noticing is that with like macro influencers, like they're becoming what traditional TV used to be from like a broadcast perspective. Like those, those are the celebrity influencers. Those are the ones that have millions and millions of followers um, that are great for uh, awareness and reach for a a campaign. Uh, And today, like there's now becoming more of a focus on micro influencers, ones that are in the, you know, thousand to $10,000 follow, excuse me, a thousand to ten thousand follower range uh, that can be more focused on you know actual you know engagement or sales. Um, so it's interesting interesting to see like as you progress as an influencer, uh, how you can be leveraged by a brand. That actually reminds me of something kind of interesting that I was just hypothesizing about. I will say that I think what's beautiful about what social media has done for especially fashion, but I think, you know, a number of different categories, just the diversity of opinion and thought that you can see. So whether that's different body shapes or whether that's um, different hair styles or whether that's um, people with vitiligo or whatever it is, everyone has a voice and it allows anyone that has and looks and feels the same way to connect with those people and do it in a really authentic way. With that comes a more narrow community, just because mm-hmm. everyone, you know, has their own things and can kind of curate their feed accordingly with like what they're interested in, what they care about. I was thinking that it might be one reason for what you were saying might be when you get to be such a big influencer, you have to appeal to a broader range of people. And so you're going wide, but you're not necessarily maybe going deep in the same way Mm -hmm. that you used to. Um, And we see this in reporting as well. So for example, Mashable started as a social media blog. They were experts in social media. Mm -hmm. And as they continued to seek growth, they expanded across broader consumer tech and then into science and then into news and at a certain point, yes, you're getting a broad swath of audience, but it's almost like a jack of all trades, master of none thing. And that's a great publication, but um, you lose, you might lose some of the fabric that made you special to start with. That could be one reason too why you get so big that engagement kind of drops. Yeah, from a a creator perspective, you might lose some of like the niche, but I think there's some dollars that are coming, and you're like. I'm willing to go for a wider audience because the revenue that comes in is greater. So I think that's where like that dichotomy of, you know, a, like a mega influencer that has a lot of large reach com- combined with a, you know, like micro influencers that have, you know, a smaller reach are, is, is like a nice combination to help, you know, brands get out there and actually uh, target and like deliver their message within the social environment with these influencers um, could be super beneficial. Do you think the same thing could be said about those direct to consumer brands? How they start? Do you see a parallel there where they start in one very niche product category and then expand? Yes, although they tend to remain in a single vertical, right? So Casper is sleep, away is travel. We're not yet, and maybe it's just too early <laughs> to see, uh, you know, 
maybe like uh, I can imagine a scene in which uh, Quip and Away get into a fight over who owns the toothbrush in your carry-on, <laughs> but, you know, and who who owns your your travel toiletries. Uh, that that could be interesting. But I think you know, for the most part, we see them sort of expanding within their vertical. So I, I wouldn't say that. I can't think of an example of any of them that have gotten so big that they're, you know, spanning multiple categories and becoming, I mean, I think that would end up looking like the big CPG companies Mm -hmm. that, you know, that have existed for the past, you know, 50 years or more. And maybe we'll get there, maybe either, either through those DTC companies eventually getting so, so big and powerful that they jump categories or they start merging, you know, that's also a possibility. Yeah. It's the same bundling and unbundling. Cause in my head I was like, mm-hmm. how do you grow a toothbrush category? <laughs> Maybe you get into great toothpaste or I guess there are ways to add to your bundle while still adding value to the consumer without. But if Casper owns the bedroom and Quip owns the bathroom at some point, if they're both doing well, they're going to start peeking down the hallway and wondering what other rooms right. in the house they can conquer. Right. Right. These brands, like these direct consumer brands, are the ones that have absolutely leveraged what social media provides from a marketing standpoint and from an, even an influencer standpoint. Uh, like most of these brands have completely done the advertising through social media to start. Um, and then from there, it went, like they kind of work their way out into like to a, a more broad strategy, um, you know, once they have uh, kind of found their niche. You know why, though? Mm-hmm. And I think the next logical extension of that is they're all opening physical retail stores. Yep. And I think they're successful in doing that because they actually have data on their consumers and they're right. paying attention to it. And so the bets that they place are smart bets because they actually know who they're talking to. That's a great point. And it really uh, flows well into our theme of the democratization of influence. You know, With these D2C brands, they've really become, in a sense, a persona uh, that allows them to directly talk talk to consumers across these different channels. But do we want to look to the future and see how we imagine influence changing as as time goes on? Uh, Christina, do you want to give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of what we've been talking about today is Instagram. Instagram has recently been through some changes in their management structure, and it's kind of yet to be seen what happens to Instagram. If there is a scenario where audience attention shifts away from Instagram, the future could look bleak for influencers who are solely reliant on Instagram. Yeah, because right now, 78% of influencers rely on on Instagram as their primary social media platform. And so that's, that's a large great. majority. Yeah, and that's great for today because I think that is where attention is. But if that were to change, look at what happened with news publishers on Facebook when Facebook changed the algorithm. Publishers that were solely relying on Facebook, I think, are having, you know, to look to other sources of revenue and figure out, you know, new business models. Um, And I think the same could be said if a similar change happens to Instagram um, with the influencers that are solely built on that platform. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of bring over that curation, that like like that um, that visual first medium uh, into another environment. Uh, like that's yet to be seen. But as for today, it seems like Instagram like they have the attention. Uh, but of course, uh, that's why we're here is understanding where things are shifting to and where things are going. Adam, what are you thinking about for the future of influence? I think that we are in a weird period right now with social media where we've had um, a few dominant social platforms that have really matured uh, far longer than we've seen before. Um, I do think that influence 
is going, influencers are going to be continually useful for exploring new platforms. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think that's a super great way for brands to, to dip a toe in the water and see what's happening uh, and be present in these new platforms. Like Twitch is a great example. We talk about yep. um, video game streaming influencers all the time. Obviously, just in the past year, Ninja has really broken out as a more household name in that community. But um, there's obviously a huge long tail of, uh, of people who have of streamers who have built up audiences there. Um, and it's the same thing as when we, you know, we we talk about new newer platforms. Um, influencers are always a great way to to play on those platforms. I my hunch is that we are seeing a little bit of deflating of the bubble on uh, platforms like Instagram already, even ahead of audience attention. Uh, any shifts in audience attention that might happen there. I have a feeling that Instagram and YouTube particularly are a little. Um, that audiences are maybe feeling a little overrun with influencers at this point because, uh, and, you know, being an it, it's obvious, right? Like the idea of being an Instagram or a YouTube influencer is super appealing. Um, it's <laughs> and, and it seems achievable because you you can see so many of them out there. So it's not a surprise that we see so many people trying to do it. But um, I do think that the audience, a lot of the audience is feeling maybe a little tapped out and that they're not ready to start hitting follow buttons on, you know, another 10 influencers next week. So um, I would expect that I feel like the we're at a mature phase of this phase of social media. And um, if attention doesn't shift somewhere else, I think that we might see some, uh, you know, the bubble, the influencer bubble on these existing platforms shrink a little bit. Adam, just to challenge you there a little bit on the uh, the, the potential bubble here, um, I think it's you know it's a bit further down the road, especially because like we're seeing more and more brands are looking to to spend more in influencer marketing. So from actually a uh, PSFK report that was produced in 2017, 48% of the respondents said that budgets are set to actually increase in 2017 uh, and most likely will double from their average spend of 25K to 50K per influencer marketing program to about 50K to 100K. So it seems like there is, um, you know, uh, a benefit and an actual like, you know, success rate for brands to be advertising with these influencers. Sure. <laughs> Although I, I think that advertising dollars um, always trail behind consumer attention. And right now, literally right now, still, uh, consumer attention is on the, you know, pretty much on the same social platforms that it has been for the past few years, and pretty much engaging with those influencers. I do think that uh, part of the result of this maturity is that it's the influencers that already exist and already have an audience are probably just going to grow those audiences. I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for new influencers um, to arise because most verticals that make sense on YouTube and Instagram are probably already taken. Right. So I think that, you know, it, it's they already have established people working in them. So unless you have a truly new angle or, or new kind of content that you, you figured out, which is, you know, obviously becomes increasingly difficult. Uh, I do think that it's, you know, a maturing of the influencers on those platforms. So if you're looking for a new angle, what are your thoughts on the virtual influencers that have been starting to crop up? <laughs> well, you know my thoughts. I do not like virtual influencers. I think uh, it's a novel idea, but I think it's kind of something different than what other influencers are doing. And in some ways actually exposes the entire industry of influencers uh, for the uh, as, as something, you know, more cynical than some influencers might more care to admit. See, I look at it uh, not not so cynically. Uh, it's I, I think it's a, you know, just kind of a new form of entertainment, in a sense. Um, 
there is this character that is living within like an Instagram post that is, you know, like promoting like a fashion line or whatever it, it might be. Um, and I wonder if it's just more of like a new form of, of entertainment for consumers in the same way that like, they're kind of like scrolling through like their news feed and they just kind of like like those, you know, aesthetically pleasing photos. All these photos are done the same way, but the person just happens to be a CGI robot. Um, so it's, I, I think it's just more of like a new form of entertainment rather than not being, um, you know, like, like a, like a negative, you know, like, like influencer. Cause in, in the sense, if they're providing, um, content as a, as a consumer that you like to enjoy, then, you know, that's kind of the reason why like you follow anybody on Instagram. For me, I would equate virtual influencers to drones. They're cool, but they're not that useful. That's how I think of virtual influencers. It's like a kitschy marketing thing Mm -hmm. that might grab attention for a bit. We'll see if they stay around or grow or drive any utility for consumers or brands. But um, I'm in Adam's camp. Christina, to your point, it's it's definitely still new. Uh, It's definitely in kind of in the PR stages. Uh, It is definitely still kind of stunty, but it's interesting to see that, for example, like little Michaela, uh, she actually partnered with uh, the magazine called Dazed as an editor. So this is a way for her to, in a sense, extend her brand outside of the Instagram platform uh, and actually start to develop this, you know, brand around little Michaela. And when we think about influencers, like this is important, especially for brands, because it is more important to work directly with influencers to kind of in a partnership to create content uh, rather than just to give them marketing assets to circulate around. So with that, you guys want to roll into some brand takeaways for our uh, lovely listeners that are out there and looking to know more about how they can really integrate this stuff into their uh, media mix and advise their clients onto it. Uh, Christina, you want to go first? Yeah, I would say one thing that this gives rise to is, I mean, the obvious answer is, right, that influencers still have influence and are producing positive ROI for brands. And I think that's an important place to think about media if that makes you know sense for your brand. I also think what this trend is giving rise to, though, is the idea of co-curation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen brands experimenting with new ways of developing product lines recently. And it does depend on where the audience attention is. So, for example, Outdoor Voices um, created their summer line totally based on conversations with their community on Instagram. And I think that's a really interesting way to dip your toe in the water of using your community and using audience attention in the same way that direct-to-consumer brands and influencers do to be really close and really authentic to their audience and actually use that conversation to develop products that are even better for their audiences. So that's one thing that sticks out to me. Oh, absolutely. As they say, fans are the best influencers. So if you can leverage your your community, I mean, that's fantastic. Adam, what about yourself? I would say to think about influencers as sort of the the small edge of the wedge uh, of attention and to focus on using them on emerging platforms, emerging formats, emerging types of content, um, or as Christina was just saying about, you know, even developing new products and services and less thinking about them as a, uh, you know, a scale play. Like we talked about micro influencers. I really do think that that's probably where the, the sweet spot is today. Um, and I think it will continue to be that way. And I, I do think that, um, 
influencers are best deployed as early on in, in a media strategy um, in, in terms of uh, in, in earlier developing channels rather than trying to, um, you know, go to the established places even. And I think that 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 calls back to what, you know, I was saying earlier about uh, the maturity of platforms like Instagram and YouTube. I think that it's actually most interesting and most useful at this point to be looking to more emerging platforms uh, as, as, the play, as the place to partner with influencers, because I think that's where they're going to be the most effective. I, I think that the more mature a platform gets, the more the influencers, they might have a larger audience, but I think they're going to have less of an influence on those audiences, actual uh, purchasing behaviors. A nice little inverse relationship. As audience matures, influence goes down. Um, well, that's great. Uh, but with that, that that's that's a wrap. That's going to be the end of this uh, fantastic pod. So if you're looking for more great content, please check out our website, ipglab.com. From there, you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter. It's fantastic. Huge advocate. Recommending to all my friends. Follow us on social our social channels. It's at ipglab across Instagram and Twitter. If you like what you hear, share. Tell a friend write us an iTunes review whatever you can do we greatly appreciate it so thank you and we'll talk soon